Again, let me say good morning to all of you, and I'm glad that you've all come to be a part of our worship services today here at Ivy Creek. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, we are going to pick up where we left off last week in our study of this book. And as you're making your way there, I'd like to say this with regard to Memorial Day the weekend and the holiday that we are celebrating tomorrow as, as a nation. Memorial Day is, is a day in which we as Americans pause and stop to remember those uh, men and women who died while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. And I think that a day like Memorial Day is a good thing for us. It's, it's good not because death is good. But it is good because we understand that the death of those who died in, in service to our country reminds us that freedom is not free. It reminds us that it costs dearly for us to enjoy the things that we enjoy in our country, the, the freedoms that we have, the, the blessings that are ours came at the cost of, of others who paid the ultimate sacrifice. And I, I think that's a sobering thought. It's a thought that um, should cause us to become introspective and appreciative of the things that we have in our country. I think it should humble us and cause us to become grateful to those who helped secure our freedom by giving their lives. Uh, and it should also cause us to appreciate who we are as Americans. Um, to express our gratitude to God for His protection and for the favor that He has shown to our country. Recognizing that others, as I said, paid the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I might experience those freedoms and experience those blessings. So I hope that as you, as we say in our, our country, as we celebrate this day, as you, as you go into that, that you will allow those thoughts to, to permeate your mind and I hope that they will cause you to uh, think about the, the act of one's giving, giving one's life for another and, and how you have benefited from that. Well, as we turn our attention once again to Genesis 37, if, if you were with us last week, you'll remember from our study in the opening part of chapter 37 that we were introduced to Joseph. Joseph is the 11th born son of Jacob. And what we learned about Joseph in the opening verses of this passage is that he was the son who was specially loved by his father. Um, the special love is clearly seen in the fact that Jacob, or Israel as he is also known in the book of Genesis, uh, gave Joseph this special robe. It was We, we call it a multicolored or, or a, a, a multi tunic or multicolored tunic that that he wore that was that was very ornamental in fact what I, I pointed out to you last week is the the same word used to describe that tunic here in Genesis 37 is also used in 2 Samuel to describe the, the tunics and the robes that were worn by uh, princes and princesses and they they were special in this way that that their, their sleeves would come all the way down to the wrists and the hemline would come all the way to the ankles. And that was uncommon in that day. As a matter of fact, the, the ornamentation of that robe was so special because that really showed that, that Joseph was his father's favorite son. But it, it also likely indicated that he had been given 
a supervisory role over his brothers. Which lets us know that the special love shown to Joseph by his father also created the next scenario that we learned about him. And that was that he was jealously hated by his brothers. I mean, they didn't like the fact that the younger son was, was one who got all of the love and attention and who probably even was, was in charge of them in many respects. As a matter of fact, they hated him so badly that according to verse 4 of chapter 37, we read that when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated Joseph and could not speak peaceably to him. So while Israel's special love and the way that he treated Joseph, that's the focus of the opening verses of this chapter, we are nevertheless introduced to the fact that that created hatred in his brothers. And in fact, the last half of this chapter, we find that Moses turns his focus directly onto the hateful way that Joseph was treated by them. And that's where we're going to direct our attention this morning. Last week, we met Joseph. This week, we meet Joseph's brothers. So notice with me back in verse 14, we read that Joseph had been sent by his father to check on his brothers and his flock. And according to verse 17, we read that he finally catches up to them in a place called Dothan. And so read with me there beginning in verse 18. Now when they, that is the brothers, saw him, that is Joseph, afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. And then Moses tells us that he said that, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down, to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and they looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit. And indeed, Reuben was not, and indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. And then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, 
We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? He recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth on his waist and he mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love to us. And we thank you for the freedom that we have to be able to gather in this place to freely open your word and to read it and to study it. We're grateful for that freedom. We're grateful for that that treasure that we have. But we're also grateful for your Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that authored this word. We're grateful that he also comes and opens our hearts and opens our minds to the truth of what he's offered altar. And so God, we we thank you for for, for that. We thank you that that we not only have the ability to come and read your word, but we know that your Holy Spirit will come and help us to understand it. So we pray to that end this morning, that you might glorify yourself, and that you might exalt yourself in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned in our reading of this passage uh, before, before reading it. The last half of chapter 37 is, is primarily devoted to the devotion, or to, to the conversations, to the, the plotting, and to the actions of Joseph's brothers. And, and, and here's where we truly get to meet this bunch of guys and find out, quite frankly, just what a sorry lot they were. Um, the facts that we learn about Joseph's brothers are what will make up the outline that I provided for you in your, out, in your bulletin this morning. So notice with me the first point on your outline. And the first thing that I want us to note about Joseph's brothers from this text, and it's this, they were troubled by the truth. Joseph's brothers were troubled by the truth. You'll notice that no sooner did Joseph's 10 older brothers recognize him as he approached the fields that they were taking care of the sheep in there in Dothan, No sooner did that happen, they immediately began to conspire to kill him. Now, we shouldn't wonder how they were able to recognize Joseph. It's pretty simple how they were able to recognize him from such a far distance. He had on that coat. He had on that tunic that went all the way down to his wrists and to his ankles. It was multicolored. It was ornamental. They could spot that guy a mile off because they hated him. And they hated that tunic that he wore. And everything about it just reminded them of their fa- the fact that their father loved him more than they loved him. Loved him more than, than they were loved. And so as Joseph made his way toward them, they started conferring with one another about how they could kill him. But I want you to notice the dismissive and the deriding way that they began to, to talk about him in verses 19 and 20. Notice what they said. Look, this dreamer. Is coming. And then they say, Let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And then they say, We shall see what will become of his dreams. 
What becomes immediately evident to us is that Joseph's coat not only angered them, but also his dreams angered him. Now, we, we looked at the dreams last week in the early part of chapter 37. Joseph had two of them. The first one was of him and his brothers out in the field and they were, they were binding up uh, wheat into sheaves and, and, and the first dream that he had was that the first sheaf, his sheaf rose up and stood up while the sheaves of all of his brothers bowed down to his. That, that was his first dream and he shared it with his brothers. And then he had a second dream in which moved from the fields to the heavens. And there he was there and, and he says the moon and the stars bowed down to him. Or sun and moon bowed down and 11 stars all bowed down to him. Now his brothers immediately understood and so did his father what those dreams meant. It, it simply meant that, that Joseph would ultimately have dominion over them and that they would ultimately bow down to him. And you notice that that was not well received among the brothers. In fact, according to verse 8, you'll read this, that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They hated the thought of their punk teenage brother being loved more by their father than they were. That was bad enough. But then, then for him to say, I will ultimately have authority and dominion over you. You will ultimately bow down to me. Well, that was just too much for them. And consequently, when they see him, they plot to kill him. And they effectually say to themselves, let's see how this dreamer's dreams turn out once we get our hands on him. Now, I mentioned something important last week that I want to remind you of today. Later, later in this story, later in chapter 41, after Joseph ends up in Egypt, and he actually ends up in the court of Pharaoh, and he's interpreting for Pharaoh the dreams that Pharaoh had. Two dreams, by the way, that Pharaoh had. The meaning of those dreams were the exact same. And there's something important that Joseph tells Pharaoh. He tells him that the dream was repeated to him twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. In other words, Joseph says, look, the, repeti the repetition of the dream was actually the assurance of the veracity of the dream. It was the assurance that the dream was going to come true. It was repeated twice because what he dreamed about was going to happen. Well, the same can be said back here in chapter 37 for Joseph's dreams. You see, in both dreams, he rose to a position of power. And in both dreams, his brothers and his family all bowed down to him. God revealed that same truth to Joseph twice, thereby establishing that it would come to pass. In fact, the rest of Genesis tells us that it actually did. In Genesis 42, verse 6, we read that Joseph was governor over Egypt and his brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. In chapter 43, verse 26, we read when Joseph came home, his brothers brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and they bowed down before him to the earth. And in chapter 44, verse 14, we read, So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there and they fell down before him on the ground. So, so God did caused these dreams that Joseph had to come true. And therefore, Joseph's dreams were a revelation of divine truth given by God to Joseph. Now, what you'll find is that many people will argue that Joseph was not very wise, though, in telling his dreams to his brothers. They'll say he was naive, that he was prideful. 
I think those kind of interpretations of Joseph's motives, though, are things that are imposed upon the text. They're not things that can be drawn out of the text because Moses doesn't tell us that he was prideful. Moses doesn't tell us that he was naive. That is something that many of us just assume. I think it's easily just as plausible to assume that Joseph sensed, because God had given him this divine revelation, Joseph sensed a God-given responsibility to make that divine revelation known to his family. In other words, I believe that Joseph sensed the necessity of revealing the truth that God had revealed to him to his brothers. Not out of pride, not out of naivete, but out of a responsibility. But nevertheless, rather than receive that divine revelation with humility and to receive it with thanksgiving, trusting in God's sovereign plan and in his protection, Joseph's brothers hated him. And they hated the truth that he told to them. And therefore they plotted against him to kill him. So as I pointed out, Joseph's brothers, they were troubled by the truth. They were angered by it. They were offended by it. And so they dismissed it. They rejected it. They refused to believe it. And they turned on the one who delivered it to them. And as such, they found themselves not only opposing Joseph, but ultimately in their folly, they wound up opposing God. That's the first thing this text reveals to us about Joseph's brothers. Notice the second. The second thing we learn is this. They were hardened by their hatred. They were hardened by their hatred. Not only, as verse 4 revealed, could they not even speak peaceably to Joseph because of their hatred, but when he approached them in the fields of Dothan wearing his multicolored tunic, his brothers were ready to kill him and throw him in a pit. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, he has described these pits, or cisterns as the NIV translates them. They were large bottle-shaped hollows or wells that had been hewn out of rock for the purpose of retaining water. And they ranged from being anywhere from 6 feet to 20 feet in depth. And then Waltke makes this very key comment with regard to them. He says, a dried-out pit makes an excellent dungeon. Well, that was certainly how it was used for Joseph, but I want you to notice that had it not been for Reuben, Joseph's eldest brother, the pit would have been Joseph's grave, not just his dungeon. Reuben overheard all his brothers talking about killing Joseph, and he persuaded them not to do so. He said, shed no blood. And then he tells them, just throw him into this pit. And the obvious implication of that is you don't, have to, you don't have to be the one that causes his death. Just throw him down in the pit and he'll die of natural causes eventually. He'll either starve to death or he'll thirst to death or some animal will get in there and kill him. But you don't have to kill him. Don't you shed the blood. Just throw him in there. Now, Reuben obviously didn't intend for that to take place. Moses tells us that his intention was to come back later at some point when his brothers weren't paying attention and to actually save his younger brother, pull him out of that pit and take him home to his father. And we might just think that Reuben is just one more stand-up guy. Isn't he awesome? I mean, I wish every older brother would treat the younger brother that way, right? Let's not forget what we already know about Reuben. Just a couple of chapters ago, we remember that Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, his father's wife. And, And he did that primarily for political purposes. We noted that he he did that in order to seize Jacob's authority and his leadership of the family. And we also know that ultimately that goal was unsuccessful. 
And we know later from what we read in chapter 49 of Genesis that Reuben's actions gravely affected the relationship that he had with his father. So consequently, many scholars believe that Reuben's plan to save Joseph's life and return him to Jacob was really his way of trying to repair that broken relationship between himself and his father. He was trying to get back in the good favor of his dad. And if that's the case, then Reuben was only interested in using Joseph for his own personal gain. In fact, later down in verses 29 and 30, after Joseph is sold off and Reuben returns to find the pit empty, he tears his own clothing in anguish and he cries out, the lad is no more and I, where shall I go? Reuben's plans... Here in chapter 37, just as they had been before, once again amount to nothing. Nevertheless, his influence over his brothers ultimately did save Joseph's life by stopping them from killing him. But they did strip Joseph of that hated coat. In fact, the verb used there in verse 23 indicates the use of extreme force in removing that tunic from Joseph. And in doing so, Walk, he notes that Joseph's brothers dethroned the royal son and threw him down into the chili cistern. But what I want you to note, as cold as that empty well may have been, it it pales in comparison to the coldness of his brothers' hearts and the callousness with which they treat their brother. Verse 25 says, After they had roughed Joseph up, stripped him bare, thrown him into the pit... They sat down to eat a meal. Can you imagine? Can you imagine such cold-hearted, callous indifference? I've told you before that one of my favorite preachers that I love to listen to, his name is Alistair Begg, B-E-G-G. And, and he's Scottish. And I could listen to him read the phone book. That's how much I enjoy listening to him speak. And I wish I had the ability to pull off a Scottish accent, but I don't. But I'm going to read you a quote from him, and I want you to imagine it in a Scottish accent being delivered perfectly, with perfect timing, because this is how he does it. He says this, When you can tear the clothes off the back, of your 17-year-old brother, bind him by his hand and feet, throw him down a hole in the ground and leave him there to die and then turn and say, hey, has anyone got ketchup for the fries? You know you've got a problem. Which is precisely why I say when we meet these brothers, we realize that they were hardened Hardened by their hatred of Joseph. But wait, as the commercials say, there's more. You see, the brothers, as they ate their lunch, Moses tells us that they saw this company of Ishmaelites coming down the road. They were coming from Gilead with their camels and they were bearing spices and balm and myrrh. And they were on their way carrying them down to trade in Egypt. And this time it's Judah, another brother, who speaks up and he sees this band of traders coming and he suggests, hey, why should we just let Joseph die down here in this pit? 
That seems foolish. Why don't we sell him? He is, after all, our brother. So magnanimous Judah is. At least we won't be guilty of shedding his blood. Let's sell him instead. Once again, right here, we see the hardness that results from the hatred that the brothers had for Joseph. Judas's, excuse me, Judah's cold and calculating plan only substitutes one evil for another. So they pull their brother up out of the pit and they sell him to those Midianite and Ishmaelite traders for 20 pieces of silver. And in doing so, they show themselves to be totally insensitive and completely hardened and deaf to the cries of their brother. Now you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Moses didn't say that Joseph was crying. Moses doesn't write about anything. Matter of fact, you're exactly right. Moses doesn't record anything that Joseph says in the last half of verse 37. He may be the, he may be the main character in this chapter, but in the final act of what we see taking place here, Moses doesn't tell us anything that he said. All we read about is what Joseph's brothers do. But that doesn't mean that Joseph didn't cry. It doesn't mean that he didn't plead. As a matter of fact, if you read ahead on into chapter 42, you will find out that Joseph's brothers admitted to such. In fact, in verse 21, they say, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. He probably cried out from that pit, begging to be pulled out. Dan, Nathalie, please, guys, come on, pull me out of here. Don't leave me down here. When they sold him off, I can hear him go, Judah, don't sell me. Please, please don't sell me off. I'm your brother. So as we're introduced to Joseph's brothers, we learn first of all that they are troubled by the truth that Joseph came to deliver. The second thing that we know, they were hardened by their hatred of him. So hardened that they would have killed him, but instead they sold him off. But now they had to figure out what they were going to do. How were they going to, how were they going to cover up? what they were doing. So they took Joseph's royal tunic that they all hated so badly and they dipped it in the blood of a young goat. And this is the part that gets me. According to verse 32, they sent that tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father. And Alan Ross in his commentary notes the irony of what occurs in this chapter. Jacob had sent his son Joseph to his brothers clothed in that robe and now his brothers send the bloodied robe back without the son. They send the robe back without the son. And that leads me to the last thing that we know about these brothers. They were guilty of causing grief. They were guilty of causing grief. 
Jacob sees his son's tunic covered in this blood and immediately believes that Joseph's been devoured by a wild beast and he's been torn into pieces. And that causes him to tear his robe and to tear his clothing. And he puts sackcloth around his waist. I'm going to be as sensitive about this as I can, but understand when they put sackcloth, it was very rough. It was, it was very harsh clothing. It was likely the, the skin of a goat that was draped around his his naked waist so that he wore it all the time. And he did that so that he could feel just how uncomfortable it was. It was something that he did to make him constantly be aware of his grief that he had because his son was dead. And it says there that all of his family, his sons and his daughters all came to him trying to comfort him and trying to get him to to come out of his, his doldrums that he was in. And you wonder, these same sons that had caused this event, did they feel, did they sense any grief in what they had done to their father? Regardless, Jacob wouldn't be consoled. He vowed to go down to his grave, mourning over his son. And Ross summarizes the scene this way. He says, Joseph's brothers succeeded in their plan. They got rid of Joseph. But they also succeeded in causing inconsolable grief and bitter pain in the family. And I can just see Jacob, that old man, holding that robe in his hands, burying his face into it and weeping and crying over the fact that his son was no more. Some of you in this room, some of you know what that grief is like because you have experienced the death of a child. Some of you know firsthand what it's like to say goodbye to someone that you raised and that you loved and that you cared for. I want you to know Jacob is so crushed by his grief that he vows he will live out the rest of his life mourning the loss of his son. But here is something important that we must not miss. Jacob's grief was based upon the fact that he believed Joseph was dead. But he wasn't. In fact, the final verse of this text kind of takes the pans back and gives us a picture of things that we did not know. In fact, he tells us something that none of the rest of Joseph's family knows. And this information is crucial because it tells us that Joseph was taken by that caravan of traders into Egypt and he was sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. And a captain of the guard. And what that tells us that specifically what Jacob believed to be true, that his son was dead, was not true. In fact, what Moses tells us here indicates that there is still much, much more to come in this story. Even though that's where this chapter ends. And what we must bear in mind then is this, that against this this dark backdrop, of Jacob's grief and Joseph's harsh mistreatment by his brothers, there is still a glimmer of hope because we know that this story is not completed yet. So in the second half of this chapter, what we have come to understand is that Joseph's brothers, they were troubled by the truth. They were hardened by their hatred. They were guilty of causing tremendous grief to their father. But as I noted in my sermon in the sentence last week in our introduction to the life of Joseph, You see, though his hand may seem hidden and though our circumstances may appear dire, 
God's fingerprints are everywhere. And they're everywhere in this story. And they are being involved in bringing about our ultimate good and, God, and God's ultimate glory. And that is certainly the case here. Even in the awful way that Joseph was being treated by his brothers. In fact, Joseph would later say, What you intended for evil, God meant for good in order to bring many people alive. That is the message of the story of Joseph. That God turned the evil, wicked, hateful actions of his brothers into the very things that would ultimately save their lives. And this is where the foreshadowing of an even greater Savior and an even greater salvation can be seen. You see, according to the New Testament Scriptures, when Jesus Christ came and began preaching the truth of the kingdom of God, and He's saying that it was at hand, He confirmed the truth that He began to preach through the signs and the wonders and the miracles that He performed. Yet His own brethren refused to believe it. In fact, they refused to believe what He said. Who does He think He is? Who is this man who says that he can forgive sins? The Jewish religious leaders in particular were troubled by the truth. They were offended. They were angered by Jesus' message of repentance and faith. Theirs was a religion of works, and they refused to believe the message that Jesus preached. And that refusal to believe the truth led them to becoming hardened in their hatred of Jesus. The scriptures declare that these sticklers for the religious practices and were so meticulous about observing the law of Moses. They hated Jesus so much they began plotting how they might put Jesus to death. In fact, the Gospels tell us that the Pharisees, who were the strict Jewish nationals of the day, even conspired with the Herodians who had cast their lot in with the Romans, and they together caused a coalition who went out to try to put Jesus to death. That shows you just how hardened they were in their hatred of Jesus. They would stop at nothing until they had put him to death, and of course they didn't stop. They pursued him, trying to catch him and with his words, wanting to see if he would make some false step so that they could pounce on him. But it was only after Jesus had completed everything that his father had sent him to do, only after he had lived an obedient life, only after he had declared the truth that salvation comes only through him, that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, only after that, that the time finally came for him to be delivered into the hands of the ungodly. And the Apostle Peter summarizes what took place this way on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I have no doubt that on the day that Jesus was crucified, these men were high-fiving themselves and congratulating themselves upon their great accomplishment because they had put to death the one who had confronted them with their sinfulness and their need of salvation. They believed that they had won because they had finally silenced his voice. But what they intended for evil, God meant for good. You see, as the scriptures go on to reveal, it is only by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that sinners can be saved. It is only through His atoning work on the cross that you and I, men, women, boys and girls, who are guilty and deserving of death, it is only that way that we can ever receive pardon and eternal life. In fact, our only hope rests in the fact that His love for us 
and for this lost world is represented in what we read in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that truth is confirmed by what we read in 1 John 3, 16, which tells us that by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Therefore, what we realize is that just as Joseph's harsh treatment by his brothers ultimately led him to be sold into Egyptian slavery, which ultimately led him to be in the position to save their lives, so the crucifixion and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me, sinners who are just as guilty of causing grief, sinners who are just as hardened by sin, sinners who are just as troubled by the truth as any of Joseph's brothers were, what we recognize is that Jesus' death is the death that brings us life. He, we, just like those brothers, recognize that our deliverance, our salvation, only comes through the suffering Son. And that's what leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. The only hope for guilty, hardened, and troubled sinners like you and me lies in the fact that Jesus endured the pain and the suffering and the death of the cross to bring about our salvation. Do you realize that today? Do you recognize that Christ is your only hope? The truth is there are some of you here today who may not realize that. There are some of you here that may be struggling with that truth. You're still troubled by it. You're troubled by the fact because you really believe that God ought to look at you and see what kind of a good woman or a good man or a good kid that you are and he ought to recognize that and in some way he ought to reward you for that. The Bible says there's no such place. The Bible says that all of us are sinners. That none of us deserve God's mercy. None of us deserve God's grace. But here's the truth. He sent his son in your place to die in your place so that you might receive eternal life. If you're troubled by that, I want you to understand it is the truth whether you're troubled by it or not. Joseph's brothers were troubled by the truth that he came to deliver to them. But ultimately they bowed before him just as his dream had revealed. And the scriptures also reveal in the book of Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The wonderful message of the gospel of grace is that he offers you an opportunity to repent now. That you might be involved in that gospel. That he might save you from your sins. It also points us to this. There was one who came, who gave his life so that countless others like you and like me, who are sinners and undeserving of the freedom and of the salvation that he came to offer might be set free from the penalty of our sins and given eternal life. And in that regard, while we as Americans celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow, there is a sense in which all Christians should celebrate Memorial Day every day as we remember the one who came to give his all paid the ultimate sacrifice for us that we might be set free. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.